Welcome to the Neurology Live Mind Moments Podcast. Tune in to hear leaders in neurology sound off on topics that impact your clinical practice. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman, an editor with Neurology Live. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Richard Finkel, a pediatric neurologist and recently named head of the new Center for Experimental Neurotherapeutics at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Dr. Finkel offered an in-depth look at how the recent FDA approval of oral wrist plan might impact the spinal muscular atrophy therapeutic landscape as we know it. My name is Richard Finkel. I'm a physician. I'm a pediatric neurologist, and I've focused my career the past 30 years or so on uh, studying and trying to help children and little babies uh, with neuromuscular disorders. Those are conditions that affect how the nerves and muscles work, or in this case, in the diseases where they're not working quite right. And some of these can be quite severe. For example, a muscular dystrophy, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And now, obviously, we're here to talk about spinal muscular atrophy and another one of those those diseases you've worked with very closely. So I'm curious, you know, in light of this new approval, could you just sort of walk me through what, what the therapeutic landscape has looked like for these patients with spinal muscular atrophy? So during my career, I've spent a fair amount of time uh, working with these uh, babies and their parents. And unfortunately for so many years we could make the diagnosis, but we would just send them home with little more than supportive care. We could try to give them good nutrition. We could try to give them some orthopedic and rehabilitation management, uh, work with the physical therapist, but it didn't really provide much in the way of improved quality of life. It didn't improve their length of life. Uh, and unfortunately there was uh, little we had to offer. Uh, this whole situation changed after the identification of the gene that causes SMA in 1995. And that allowed us to better understand the biologic basis for SMA. And shortly after that, scientists started to look at different treatment strategies to say, well, how maybe can we figure out how to actually fix this problem or at least make it better? And at the same time, doctors such as myself who were seeing these babies in the clinic were trying to figure out, well, if in fact there is a drug that works, how are we going to measure it? How are we ever going to be able to figure out, is the drug safe? Is it effective? Uh, so between 1995 and approximately 2010, there was a lot of activity by scientists to try to develop these drugs, by the clinicians such as myself, and with working with many others, uh, often in different uh, collaborative efforts, to try to figure out um, how are we going to best treat these children and how are we going to bring these new drugs into the clinic and test them. Uh, so starting in about 2010, we started looking at uh, different drug treatments through clinical trials. And the first uh, child uh, for the first of these drugs was treated in 2011. And at that point, things moved along really pretty quickly. 
And the first drug, um, now called Spinraza, uh, was improved in late 2016, so three and a half years ago, or 2017, rather. And uh, the whole world changed after that, because uh, now we had a drug which uh, not only did these babies live longer, because uh, before that, the, the most severe form, these babies would live, on average, less than two years. Uh, they they succumbed uh, to the progressive weakness. Uh, their breathing muscles failed. Their feeding uh, muscles failed. They needed feeding and breathing support. And even with that, they uh, they faltered. And we had trouble. We really struggled to keep them alive more than two years in most cases. With this drug, Spinraza, we were keeping them alive longer. They weren't needing as much as much breathing and feeding support. And importantly, uh, not only did it seem to stop the progressive decline in their function, the progressive weakness, but they actually got better. And that was something we didn't expect. So we actually saw improvement where these babies were now rolling over and sitting and gaining skills that we never even thought was possible before. That must have really been a large, drastic change in sort of how you manage patients. I mean, was that particularly uh, a, a was that a huge moment? I would imagine it was. And then, and then, sort of, how have the other approvals been? That really revolutionized things. And a- after this, Benraza became available in the United States and subsequently in Europe and many, many other countries in the world. Uh, we now started to look at this disease, spinal muscular atrophy, uh, really as a treatable disease, not curable, but treatable and manageable. Uh, now, about a year ago, a little in uh, May of uh, 2019, the second drug uh, became FDA approved, and that changed things yet again. Uh, now, this was the first gene therapy drug for SMA called Solgensma. Uh, and that had some very attractive qualities to it. It's a one-time treatment, uh, so you give it intravenously. Uh, you have to follow the children very carefully uh, for those next couple months in particular. Uh, but uh, it seemed to uh, be very attractive uh, to treating both these little babies and older children, but was only approved by the FDA for uh patients under two years of age. So that's really an important distinction from the Spinraza, which was uh, FDA approved for children of all ages and all types of SMA. Uh, It's a little bit more involved because uh, the Spinraza has to be administered uh, by Spinal Tap um, repeatedly to administer the drug directly into the spinal fluid so that the drug can then get to these nerve cells in the spinal cord and the brain. Uh, and the Zolgensma uh, is uh, a one-time intravenous treatment, so quite a bit different. Uh, and I would say we're still uh, trying to figure out which patient uh, optimally responds to the Zolgensma, which patient is uh, optimal for the Spinraza. I don't think we're there yet to be able to do strict comparisons, uh, but I think in the next few years uh, that hopefully will be uh, more possible. And now. You know, just last week, the FDA has approved a, a third drug, Rizdaplam. Um, and I'm sort of curious, what what are you expecting to happen now that we have this this third option available for patients? Uh, this is going to change things yet again. Uh, 
it, all in a good way because it provides now a third opportunity, a third type of drug to, for doctors to consider in the treatment of their patients. And what's different about this drug is it's oral. So you take it daily, once a day, by mouth, and it doesn't require the spinal taps, which is nice. Um, it doesn't require uh, the potential risks of the gene therapy uh, and the management of that, which uh, can be substantial in some cases. Uh, and it appears from the evidence we know so far uh, that uh, this new drug, Rizdaplam, is both safe and effective. Um, and to the credit of the uh, company that developed this, uh, Hoffman LaRoche, uh, in partnership with the uh, Genentech, which is the U.S. arm of that company. Uh, I think they did a really good job at trying to evaluate uh, the drug across a, a broad range of patients, from little babies aged two months and up, all the way uh, to adults 25 years of age who had a milder form of the SMA. So this drug uh, is a is approved virtually for all patients, but not, importantly, not from birth to two months of age, not yet. And there's still an ongoing clinical trial to try to evaluate these little babies within the first six weeks after birth, uh, particularly those who are pre-symptomatic, meaning they're, they're identified by genetic testing. Uh, we know they're going to develop SMA. It's just a matter of time. Uh, and we want to try to get them on the drug as soon as possible. Uh, so this pre-symptomatic treatment is something that's already been evaluated uh, with the nusinersen or Spinraza drug, shown to be highly effective, uh, amazing, uh, that now these uh, little babies started in the first few weeks of life or three to four years of age, and many of them are developing normally. It's, it's most remarkable. So I think we've learned that earlier treatment is better, uh, even treating pre-symptomatically. Uh, after they've had the genetic diagnosis made and we start treatment, that seems to be optimal. And we're learning that same lesson through uh, a, a current clinical trial involving the Zolgensma drug, the gene therapy. Uh, so, and that data is emerging in a very favorable way as well. And then this third study uh, with the Rizdaplam, I hope, will answer the question for that drug. So, uh, at the moment, I'd have to say we're in a wonderful state of disruption because just as we get used to one drug, a second one comes along. And just as we start to get used to how to prescribe that second drug, here comes the third one. Yeah, it's a good problem to have, fortunately, at least. And I'm curious, what what sort of challenges still remain in this space? You know, obviously sort of in the infancy of, of therapy of therapeutic development, but now that there are some options, you know, what what challenges remain to be overcome? I think the challenge to physicians um, who are treating patients with spinal muscular atrophy is to try to counsel the parents and to emphasize that at the moment, none of, none of the three drugs that are FDA approved really are a cure for the patient who already has symptoms. It might be for selected patients uh, who are treated pre-symptomatically. We still have more to learn there. But for the symptomatic patient, all three of these drugs clearly uh, make a substantial difference. They improve lifespan. They improve quality of life. They improve their function. 
It reduces hospitalizations. Uh, so you can go down a long list of the benefits, and all three seem to be safe, um, but have their, their own uh, safety profiles that we need to keep in mind. The, the challenge to the physician, as I see it, is uh, how do you counsel a particular parent on their specific child? Because when we look at the, the information that comes out of the clinical trials, um, it looks at a whole group of patients, and it doesn't look at one specific patient. And, and at least for me, it's still challenging to try to look at a new baby uh, or young child who's been recently diagnosed with SMA and to say, well, which of these three drugs is really the right one for you? Because we don't have complete data yet to answer that. We have good information to say that all three drugs are safe uh, and uh, have a good safety profile uh, and can be recommended uh, to parents uh, with proper monitoring. Uh, and we know that all three work. They provide benefits, significant benefit. But, but how do you actually tease it apart and sort out uh, what is uh, the optimal drug for uh, any particular patient to me uh, remains the single biggest challenge. Are there any others that, that sort of stick out uh, for, for any particular reason, or is there anything you guys are doing to combat um, you know, some of these other challenges in, in addition to that? Uh, I think the other uh, issue is, as I mentioned before, we have uh, these uh, pre-symptomatic patients, uh, and that that group is going to increase rapidly over the coming years. And that's because of newborn screening uh, that's taken hold now. Uh, it's been approved in, I believe, 31 of the 50 states. Um, I expect eventually all 50 states will have a program so that when the uh, baby's born, it has that little heel stick to check for these very deadly diseases, these genetic disorders. Uh, such as PKU, uh, that now SMA is being added to that list. And we can identify these babies and uh, initiate a treatment uh, again in the first few weeks of life before they've even shown any signs of the SMA. But the challenge remains, which drug? And so how do you foresee or, or, or how currently are... Um are you deciding between the drugs that, you know as as an option for specific patients and 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 what are you expecting going forward uh, in i think in many cases this is coming down to parental preference uh some cases it depends on uh how important uh is it f uh for these parents to understand the data uh behind making these decisions uh, how, how much of it is the burden of the treatment itself, such as the spinal taps, or the relative risk, such as the gene therapy, which is a little higher risk in some ways, uh, uh, and or the ease of administration of an oral drug. I mean, I mean it's certainly appealing to be able to just uh, give your baby uh, a little bit of liquid each day, a little bit of medicine by mouth. Not And in the context of COVID, I think we have to say that that's probably an important consideration. I'm sure parents don't want to bring their little baby or even older child to the hospital uh, where we're always concerned, well, what's the risk of COVID? Uh, and I know that all hospitals and clinics are going to extraordinary uh, extents of trying to uh, minimize the COVID risk, but it's never zero. 
So I would say there's some uh, potential advantages uh, to the Rizdiplam uh, because it can be home-based and it's oral. Uh, and I think also it's nice because uh, being oral, it potentially, at least theoretically, uh, can get into all the tissues of the body. So whereas the spinraza, when it's injected into the spinal fluid, is really directed to those nerve cells in the spinal cord. That's the primary target. Uh, same thing with Zolchezma. You inject it intravenously, but it's targeting primarily uh, the nerve cells in the brainstem and the spinal cord. Uh, whereas the Rizdiplam uh, is different. It goes from the mouth into the stomach, into the bloodstream, and it gets distributed into really all the tissues of the body. So there may be an enhanced benefit because it's getting into muscle. Because at the end of the day, we want to make both the nerve cells function better, but we also want to make the muscle, which, was, which is receiving the signal from these nerve cells and working together as a unit. We need to make sure that the nerve and muscle together uh, are both as healthy as possible. So the Rizdiplam may, in fact, uh, provide some added benefit uh, over the Spinraza and the Zolchezma. Now, that remains to be seen, and I want to emphasize that. It's, I think that's still a premature kind of conclusion, but uh, I think we're hoping to identify whether, in fact, that's the case. Uh, and uh, that leads to the next point, which is that uh, with all three of these drugs, we still have a lot to learn, uh, that we still need to follow these children carefully in our clinic. We need to see how they're responding to the drug. And, and I uh, believe that we're going to see subtle differences with each of the three drugs. Uh, I don't think each drug is going to work quite the same uh, in these children. And we may, in fact, find out over time that there's one group of patients with SMA that respond better to one drug and a different group of patients that respond better to a second drug, et cetera. So we still have, I would say, quite a bit of work ahead of us um, to try to optimize uh, the use of these drugs to better understand uh, which patient is going to respond optimally to which drug. So we have a few more years of work ahead of us. Thanks for listening to the Neurology Live Mind Moments podcast. For more neurology news and expert-driven content, visit neurologylive.com.